0: The podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information go to belmontchapel.org.uk Right, okay, we're going to continue our teaching series entitled The Cost of Living. This is part five of six, so we are sort of drawing towards uh, the end of what we're looking at from Romans chapter 12. In a few moments, Anna is going to come and read to us. And as we've done in the rest of the series, we're building the readings as we go through um, the series. So we'll be reading all 16 verses so far of Romans chapter 12 in a few moments. But before we do that, I'd like to remind us of something of the context of Paul's letter. Johnny reminded us right at the very start of our series, if you can remember, That in order for us to get to grips with chapter 12 of Romans, then really, of course, we need to have read the preceding 11 chapters. And that's obviously important. It's very important that we do that. And we look at Paul's theological argument that he unpacks and expands as he goes through his letter. But there's something else we need to do as well not only look at the theological argument and the context for it, but also we need to look at something of the historical context because that's important. Paul's letter to the Romans is the longest complete letter that we have from the ancient world of any type. It's not only the longest, but I would suggest to you it's the most dangerous. It was written to a group of Christians living in a city... Ruled by a murderer who built his reign upon the corpses of his rivals. Emperor Nero came to power in 54 AD. It happened when he assassinated his. Um, sorry, it happened because his mother assassinated his stepfather, Emperor Claudius. There was a rumor going around that Nero was about to be disinherited and she was having none of it. And so she dealt with it. This is what the Roman historian Suetonius has to say. Nero showed neither discrimination nor moderation in putting to death whoever he pleased on any pretext whatsoever. And the reason why Paul's letter written from Corinth to his Christian brothers and sisters in Rome is so dangerous is because Paul writes in direct opposition to the rule of Rome. In the eyes of the Roman emperor, Paul's letter is treason, Paul claims there is only one king, and it's not Nero. It's Jesus Christ. So, Paul, in his uncompromising style, jumps right in. Now, it's easy, I think, to miss the impact of the opening first four verses of Paul's letter. This is what he writes. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who in his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And here... Within this opening few lines, Paul chooses three words that can't fail to have captured the immediate attention of his Roman readers. Firstly, he uses this word, the word euangelion, the Greek word, which is translated for us as gospel. Now, the Latin equivalent, the direct equivalent of that word in Latin was a technical word used by the Roman Caesars to either announce the birth of an heir or to inform the people of a great victory. So Paul's inclusion of this word to this particular audience is a direct challenge to the culture of the day. The real gospel, says Paul, isn't good news of Roman rule. The real gospel is the gospel of God regarding his Son. Secondly, Paul goes on to use this word, the word kurios, or Lord. Now, this word was a title that Caesar's assumed for themselves. We have a very direct usage of it in Acts chapter 25. But Paul, once again, defies the authority of the empire. He speaks about Jesus Christ, our kurios, our Lord, in verse 4, not Caesar. Then thirdly, Paul uses the word Christos, meaning Christ or Messiah. The name used to refer to God's chosen one. King David's heir who would one day establish a throne, would establish a kingdom that would last forever. The Messiah, says Paul, has already come. There is a king who will rule over a kingdom far greater than Nero. The king is in town, and it's not Nero. So with that in mind, we're going to look at our passage. If you've got a Bible and you've got it open in front of you, uh, then please just follow the reading from Romans chapter 12. I've asked Anna if she will come and read it for us. The reading's are going to be on the screen, provided, of course, I keep up with Anna's reading. Let's see how we go. Thank you, Anna.
1: Hi, wow, (laughs) Um, I'm Anna, Um, I'm a student at the University of Exeter, um, and I'm a part of the um, Exeter Evangelical Christian Union, and uh, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to be reading the passage today, Romans 12, verse 116. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not think yourselves superior.
0: As I suspected, harder than I thought. Um, but we kind of did keep. Never push this twice, because you have no idea where you are after that. <laughs> Absolutely no idea. Never mind. Okay. Now it's important to notice right from the start. These are the verses we're going to be looking at: the, the last three, 14 to sixteen, if you've got them in front of you. Right from the start, I want you to notice that none of these suggestions are. None of these statements are suggestions. They're imperatives they commands. None of them say it would be a really good idea if. And as such, they are challenging. So much of what it means to follow Jesus demands that we live our life in the spotlight. Since our actions as whole life disciples of Christ are likely to attract attention. Some positive, some negative. And the reason why that's the case, of course, is because being a citizen of God's kingdom invariably leads us to subverting expected cultural norms. We are citizens of the kingdom and not subjects of the empire. That's Paul's point as he writes Romans 12. Recently, in our series entitled Frontline Sundays, we thought about the potential that We have to make a difference, whether we are gathered church together, as we are now, or scattered church throughout the city on our front lines. And whilst our context may be very different from those to whom Paul originally wrote, the way we live out our faith ought to attract comment. So what is it that Paul has to say to us in this short passage? Well, I'd like us to look at these very few verses under just two headings, and here they are. Firstly, we're called to live differently, to stand out from the crowd. And then secondly, we're called to live relationally, to look out for others. As Ben has so helpfully reminded us this morning, there are many thousands of our Christian brothers and sisters across the world who are suffering persecution because of their faith. The first recipients of Paul's letter living in Rome in the middle of the first century would have been all too familiar with what persecution looked like. Rome was a a multicultural city. And the authorities were, were by and large tolerant of most religious expressions. However... That tolerance was largely limited to religions that were polytheistic, meaning that the Roman authorities really didn't care who you worshipped as long as, amongst the things you worshipped, you included worship of the emperor. And aside from that, you could worship what you'd like as long as you didn't cause any trouble. And of course, the problem for both Christians and Jews during the middle part of the first century was that they were both fiercely monotheistic. They proclaimed the unpopular doctrine that there was only one God. By extension, of course, they refused to worship the emperor, they refused to just acknowledge him as any kind of deity. And so for these reasons, Christians and Jews began to experience all kinds of persecution. For example, the Roman Emperor Claudius, who I mentioned earlier, banished all Jews from the city in 49 AD, a decree that lasted for some five years until Claudius' death. And at the time of writing, Emperor Nero, who expressed an intense dislike for Christians, was starting to apply all kinds of pressures upon the Christian community. Pressures that would, over the course of time, after only a few years, lead to a brutal and sadistic assault against the Christian faith and all those who profess Christ as Lord. It hadn't quite started at the point of writing. Persecution looked differently for the Christians in Rome at Paul's letter-writing moment. But it was coming. They could tell. They could see it. And so it was that in only a few years' time, this happened. And into this bubbling cauldron of antagonism, and that's what it must have been, Paul writes this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Wow. The Good News Bible helps us. It helpfully just expands a little bit on Paul's use of the word bless. It says, Ask God to bless. You see, whilst we may find it particularly hard to seek out ways to bless someone who's wronged us, we know that God wants us to be a blessing. He wants us, through the indwelling of our spirit, to bless other people. And we can only do that through his power at work in our lives. Now this instruction, of course, finds some clear resonance within the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We can see where Paul is coming from with this. What do we know? Well, we read this, don't we? Towards the end of Matthew chapter 5 part of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, of course, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Similarly, when we get into Luke chapter six, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. So, says Jesus, in this, we have one aspect of what it looks like to live differently, to stand out as followers of Jesus, to be red dots within the sea of grey. And both Jesus and Paul aren't simply saying, well, you should just refrain from retaliating against those who treat you unfairly. Or even they aren't saying that, well, you should just forgive them. But most importantly... We are being instructed to actively seek their good and pray for blessing upon their lives. Also, worth noting that in this phrase, the tense of the word you is plural. You know, so often, and I say this time and time again, we fail to grasp the whole picture of what the New Testament writers are telling us because we assume they are writing to us as individuals, to me, to you. But they're not. The Christian faith is properly expressed when it is lived and understood in community. Paul says, I am writing to you all of you. And that's why it is right, of course, that we pray for our brothers and sisters across the world who are suffering persecution. Since, as Paul tells us earlier in this chapter, we are one body. Do you remember that when we thought about that? We are one body. And as such, he says, in another per- in another verse, in 1 Corinthians, if one part of the body suffers, all the other parts suffer with it. Do we understand this one bodiness of being a community? Do we really understand and take on board the fact that almost every time it says you, it means us in the New Testament? Or do we think we can live our lives individually as Christians? Well, we can't. We can't, and we were never intended to do so. Which brings us to this one Live relationally, look out for others. One of the other ways I think that we stand out from the crowd is the way that we ought to live communally. The fact that the New Testament is written almost exclusively to communities demands that we really take seriously Paul's earlier comment in the second half of verse 5, where he says each member belongs to the others. And that's the reason why we rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn, in verse 15. The fundamental hallmark of a Christian community, such as the one that we are part of here at Belmont, ought to be love for one another. No longer should we be motivated by self-interest. No longer should we be sucked in to the cult of me first. But instead we are called to show empathy and compassion to one another. Now that, you may say, is hard enough within this community, but it's certainly hard enough out there. But perhaps Paul doesn't mean that, but I think he does. Paul actually does mean that it's out there as well as in here. Paul's words aren't exclusively linked to the relationships that we share one with another within the body of Christ. And I say that because of the proximity of this verse to the preceding one. I think it means that we should take the same attitude of compassion that we have one for another, out into the world. And if we don't and can't, for whatever reason, model it here, we will never model it out there, where things get a bit tough. Paul goes on to flesh out what it looks like to live relationally, both gathered and scattered, in the remainder of what he has to say. I don't know if you've noticed, but um, during this series we've been encouraged to consider a variety of themes that have been expressed through visual images and through visual age. Johnny um, introduced us to the rope, which Paul, interestingly, last Sunday uh, morning called the Rope of Hope. Um, Then we had something of a jigsaw puzzle, you remember, as Clive encouraged us to see the bigger picture by thinking about a jigsaw. Simon reminded us of the words of John Lang when the first church building was opened on this site back in 1956 and then Paul last week reminded us that our love is to be sincere not something that's merely a mask that we wear so in keeping with this theme of helpful images I'm going to go for another one and here it is a few years ago my wife Paula and I went to the cathedral Uh, to hear the Albion Quartet. Now, this group is one of this country's finest string quartets, and it's always quite incredible to hear them play. And whilst every instrument's different, whilst every line of music is unique, whilst every player is demonstrably different in character and expression, the combined result of that diversity is absolutely extraordinary. Each player appears, I think, to have only three ambitions. To play their part to the best of their ability. To complement and enhance the gifts of their fellow musicians. And to interpret faithfully the intention of the composer whose music they are playing. Does that sound like church? Well, it did to me. Let me say them again. Three ambitions, to play their part to the best of their ability, to complement and enhance the gifts of their fellow musicians, and to interpret faithfully the intention of the composer whose music they are playing. What does Paul say? Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not think you are superior. The big emphasis here is is on oneness. But Paul isn't talking about blandness. There's a big, big, big difference between unity and uniformity. Uniformity is the result of external pressure. But unity is the result of an internal transformation. So when Paul says to his friends that they should live in harmony with one another, he's not saying that they should all think the same, they should all act the same. Uniformity is bland. But unity is purposeful. And unity is really closely related to harmony. In another letter that we studied a while back, Paul expresses this same idea. He expands upon the reasoning that lies behind his injunction. Paul says, writing to his friends in Philippi, he says this. If you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. What Paul describes is the blending together of difference to serve one purpose. So when Paul talks about Being one in spirit and one mind, that's what he means. He's talking about purposefulness. Unity has a shared commitment. And for us, it's a shared commitment to Christ. Rather like that string quartet working together to bring to the ear of an audience the will and the work of a composer. This is what Keller has to say writing in his commentary on Romans, the word harmony here means to be one-souled. This requires that our spirits should be knitted together with mutual love for Christ, living in harmony with one another. Our souls should be welded together with a common acceptance of each other. And this common acceptance is what Paul goes on to talk about as he talks about humility. Just for a moment, let's go back to my illustration about the string quartet. The musical harmony of this group relies on humility in its truest sense. You see, it's absolutely no good if one of these players suddenly decides that he or she wants the audience to notice them above everybody else. Unbalancing the blending of the instruments through playing too loud or simply playing at the wrong time just results in distortion. It results in just a mess. And in the same way, we should have a desire to reflect the good news of God's love and grace, whether we're gathered or scattered, through humility. Now, we can get humility a little bit muddled up, I think. Humility isn't thinking less of ourselves. It's simply thinking of ourselves less. That's what humility is. It's all about seeing worth and seeing importance in other people. Not in terms of of status, but in terms of need. It's having the attitude that says, I'm going to put someone else's needs before mine. And I don't think that requires any special gift. I don't think it requires any grand gesture. Sometimes, I think it just means... A smile, a warm welcome, a few words of support, an offer to pray. Now I know I've asked this question before and um, please excuse me for repeating it, but I wonder if you ever find yourself asking this question. I do, so it's okay to be honest about it. Does being a part of the church at Belmont meet my needs? Have you ever heard that one? Or have you said it yourself? Does being a part of this community meet my needs? Well, if you've ever had that question pop into your mind, I'd strongly encourage you to turn it on its head. Ask a slightly different one. Am I, through being part of the church at Belmont meeting someone else's need that's the real question that we need to ask as community that's the important one as we draw almost towards the close of this series i wonder if you felt particularly challenged you know i find the whole of romans chapter 12 both encouraging and hugely unsettling these verses aren't talking about something that's superficial These verses aren't suggestions. These are imperatives. They're expressing what it looks like to live transformed, sacrificial lives, both individually and communally. We are reading dangerous, culturally subversive words. Paul says there's a new king in town. And it's not Nero. I wonder if in your life or in mine there are kings that we need to dethrone. Maybe, as Johnny reminded us right at the start of this series, perhaps we've usurped Christ, his place on the throne of our lives. If that's the case, then don't miss the opportunity to speak to somebody this morning about what it means to live under new ownership. I'm going to pray. The band are going to come up and we're going to sing a final couple of songs uh, before we close our time together. On the screen there, you'll see uh, the logo of the Alpha course. You'll find there's more details about Alpha in the focus for uh, today. There's no Alpha course this term, but you can find out more about it in preparation for autumn term. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's words. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we've continued our journey through chapter 12 of Romans that we will feel challenged and we will also feel encouraged. We'll see the good things that are happening in, around us and through us, and we'll give our praise to you, our Heavenly Father. We'll recognize the parts that we play. We'll be thankful for our brothers and sisters. But at the same time, we'll recognize that we need to reveal who the new king in town is we need to shine brightly as red dots amongst the gray whether gathered or scattered help us to do that we pray as we take something of the good news of the gospel the gospel of jesus christ out from here into the world